This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Navigating the complex domain of political correctness and identity politics has become increasingly tricky in recent years as populist figures on the right, such as Pauline Hanson, Donald Trump and others, have gained ascendancy through painting their imagined opponents as a sort of urbane, left-leaning class of elites who are increasingly detached from the concerns and lived experiences of so-called ordinary people. And while the political currency of this has been pretty clear to see, what's been harder to ascertain is how the left, if we take that in a very broad sense, can adequately respond in the face of such outright posturing to encourage alliances among those marginalised by particular government policies and neoliberal economics. Our very own Jeff Sparrow has taken a very close and typically detailed look at this in his new book, Trigger Warnings, Political Correctness and the Rise of the Right. Through combining history with acute insights into the state of political culture today, he details how a shift in the type of politics adopted by progressives has served to jeopardise opportunities for collective solidarity and meaningful social change. As well as being a break faster, Jeff is the author of many books and a regular columnist for The Guardian. He joins me today in the studio. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you so much for sticking around. <laughs> it's you could have got out of here. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a pleasure. It's great to be on the other side of the interviewing um, panel. <laughs> well, these ideas and, and concepts such as political correctness, identity politics, trigger warnings and concerns around a cultural appropriation, they all figure in your book, but they're pretty thorny issues and, and terms that I think quite a few progressives in particular find it hard to navigate in an era of kind of call-out culture and social media and, and where perceived, perceived transgressions can land you in pretty hot water fairly quickly. Was this a difficult book to write, I guess, being aware of those sorts of sensitivities? Look, it's a, it is a complex um, area and, you know... Um you, you engage with this, I guess, with some sort of awareness that it, these are sensitive topics about which people feel very strongly. But also, I, I guess the impetus for me is that um, we're in really dangerous times. You know, like, I mean, the rise of Donald Trump was one part of the back, background to this book. But you look at things that, like climate change and the... You know, we're, we're in a state now where we can see the planet falling apart all around us and so I think we have to start asking ourselves what strategies are we going to use how are we going to turn things around how are we going to actually stop you know the the drift of politics into really dangerous places and so that means I think we all have a responsibility to try to engage with these ideas and you know to try and do it in a a comradely and sensitive kind of way but if we're not prepared to have arguments about which way forward, then we are never going to get anywhere. And so that that that's the place um, from which the book is coming from. It's not a book about trying to troll people or anything like that. It's just to sort of say, you know, things have not been going particularly well for the left. What are we going to do about it? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And and what is is really fascinating about the book is the way that that you engage with history and trace the way that particular terms have changed over the years as well. And you go back to when political correctness as an idea kind of entered the public kind of lexicon. Can you take us back to, to how it emerged and, and how it really took off in the 1990s and, and what it came to mean? Yeah. I mean, when the start, my starting point is that political correctness never has never really existed. And I mean that in two senses. In, in one sense, um, political correctness is, is a term that's kind of used in an often quite... Um, over the top and exaggerated kind of way. So people probably know that story that's always trotted out in articles about PC, about, you know, the, the school that taught kids to sing Baba Green Sheep or something rather than, you know, Baba Black Sheep because they were the PC. When you actually look at the history of that story, it never actually happened. Mm. What happened was a particular school was trying to teach kids how to use colours. This became this example of PC gone mad. And so when you dig down at it, it's full of examples like that. But the more interesting aspect of it is that the term political correctness was originally a kind of in-joke on the left. In the Australian left, the equivalent term was ideologically sound. And it was a term that 
people on the left use with each other to basically try and tell someone to lighten up a little bit. You know, you're too PC, you're, you know, you're taking yourself too seriously. So there never was this kind of um, philosophy of political correctness. that people, when, when conservatives go on about cultural Marxism, it's almost like there's this totalitarian idea mm. of PC. And in fact, the concept of PC was a critique of totalitarianism. And that all got turned around in the education wars that took place um, in the US in the 1980s. It's a really interesting story because so much of the way in which those debates were originally positioned were completely topsy-turvy from the way that the argument is put now. So the Reaganite right that was pushing these sort of these education and culture wars in the 1980s, today the, um, the anti-PC brigades see themselves as anti-censorship. Mm. Actually, the Reaganite right was pro-censorship, explicitly. Reagan ran on a platform of we need more censorship of pornography. Uh, today, um, the anti-PC forces are all about um, anti-elitism. The education wars of the 1980s were attacking the universities for not being elitist enough, quite explicitly, saying the problem is that these these um, courses are allowing, you know, too many women, too many blacks, and they're not enough about teaching the great philosophers. Moved away from the canon and so on. Exactly. Kind of so there's just been almost 90-degree um, turn in the way that these terms are used. And the term PC never really entered the public consciousness until uh, 1990 when the New York Times used it um, in an article. And from there, it just exploded. And the reason why I think it, um, the term became so popular on the right is it was a way of critiquing the left on campus that... Um, didn't sound like it was coming from the traditional right because you could say you, you weren't you, you didn't have to say look I'm against women's liberation I'm against anti-racism you could say I'm against political correctness which made it sound like you were for freedom you were mm. for liberation or whatever and so um, if you go back to that early period it's quite interesting that it was taken up quite quickly by some people who were on the left who were originally on the left as well which gave it a kind of currency that it wouldn't have otherwise have had it's interesting to reflect on that now with kind of um you know debates around the ramsey center for western civilization and so on it's, it feels like those education wars are, are still very much um being waged under this ruse of, of freedom of, of speech in a way which prioritizes um you know in this case Western civilization is this, this great era that we need to kind of celebrate and, and teach. Yeah, the Ramsey Centre is almost like a flashback to the original form of the education wars with this 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 notion of the great canon of the of you know the Western civilization that should be treasured. But the way anti-PC manifests itself in say the tabloid media is quite different from that it's it's kind of like the argument is political correctness is stopping ordinary Australians from doing the things that ordinary Australians like to do and it paints the proponents of political correctness as being these kind of uptight elitists who are looking down on people whereas the Ramsey Centre is making almost completely the opposite argument that we need you know we need an elite to be setting this kind of course so the whole argument is kind of strange and nonsensical, but that's the background for where we are today. Yeah, and you write in the book that, that the alt-right have successfully reframed the way we talk about politics. And in that example, I guess, coming from political correctness as being kind of an, an in-joke among progressives to something that is used as kind of a, um, a pejorative term, which is kind of presumed to be anti-freedom of speech and that kind of thing. Is that one example of what you're talking about when you're saying that the alt-right have reframed the way the way we talk and, and do politics today? Yes, and the other really obvious example is the language of um, anti-elitism, which again, when, when you step back from it, the notion of all these Murdoch columnists railing against the elites is, you know, it's batshit crazy. Here are these people who are paid hundreds of thousands of dollars who, you know, have access to all of these media platforms and yet they've managed to create this rhetorical structure where they to be speaking truth to power. And in a sense, it's a vocabulary that traditionally would have been associated with the left, but they've managed to repurpose it where, you know, the elites become these, you know, inner city liberals or, or, or whatever, and the battlers become, um, well, basically anyone who is conservative. So it's this strange repurposing of 
an almost left-wing rhetoric that I think plays quite an important role in phenomena like Trumpism. Well, well it's, it, it caught everyone off guard, I think, that the, the fact of, of Trump's election and that that kind of anti-elitism managed to gain traction given that he was this kind of construction property tycoon living in a golden office on Wall Street. Yes, that, that, that's right. I mean... If you again, if you take a step back and look at it, it seems almost literally insane that here is a figure who can position himself as the man who is staring down the elites. When of course, Trump's whole persona was, you know, at this over-the-top celebration of conspicuous consumption. And I, I, I mean, I, I guess that's part of the context for for trying to engage with these arguments. Something has gone terribly wrong for progressives when a figure like Trump is able to take the mantle of anti-elitism and is able to speak, you know, ostensibly on behalf of ordinary people when he is someone who has, you know, never been an ordinary person in his life and is quite clearly, you know, and quite clearly and quite overtly putting arguments for the, you know, the benefit of the top 1% of the population. You kind of frame your whole argument in this really interesting transition from the type of politics that, that progressives have engaged with over the last kind of half century and a bit from a kind of direct politics approach to delegated politics and then what you term as the smug politics of today. Can you take us through that kind of framework and, and what you mean by that? Yeah, so a lot of these arguments about culture wars always come back to the 60s, you know, and and um, the argument that I make is that at the high point of the 60s, really the early 70s in uh, Australia, all of the um, great social movements that now form the backdrop of politics today, so that, you know, um, the women's liberation movement, the black liberation movement, the national liberation movements, all of these movements were engaged in what I call direct politics, that they were about trying to mobilise some notion of the people, however you define that, ordinary people to make structural changes to society that are driven from the bottom up, that are engaged with participatory democracy. So, you know, quite clearly these kind of anti-elitist, bottom-up movements. Um, and I suggest that what happens in the late 1970s and the early 1980s is it begins to... that the left begins to move to something that I call delegated politics, where the struggles of the 60s die away, but also increasingly there are, there are figures on the left who begin to have a degree of institutional power, whether that's in NGOs or trade unions or universities. And the combination of those two things leads to a shift from that bottom-up politics to an, a notion that you can deliver social change on behalf of your constituency. You don't have to mobilise the constituency yourself. You can do it on their behalf. And very often this involves um, some sort of engagement with the state or semi-state um, bodies. And very often the kind of change that is delivered becomes increasingly symbolic. So, you know, um, the universities are really good examples um, of that. And then the third phase of this, um, which I identify as happening in the 2000s, which, which I call smug politics, is a kind of politics where rather than seeing the people as the solution or rather than seeing the people as um, a force that you're acting on behalf of, increasingly there's a tendency on the left to see the people as the problem, mm. that social change is something that has to be enforced against a population that is innately right-wing, a population that is innately kind of boorish and dangerous. And so if you want to engage in social change, the sort of smug politics argument is you have to find a way of doing it in spite of these you know, of these almost, these this sort of more Lockean kind mm. of population that are dangerous and scary and need to be kept in their place. And I mean, the central argument of the book, I guess, is that, that smug politics has been absolutely disastrous for the left. And we can kind of see that in, in Hillary Clinton's talk of the, the, the basket of deplorables and, and that sort of sentiment, which kind of galvanised Trump supporter base, um, those who were supporting Trump, you know, who, who might not have thought of themselves, I, I, I would suggest, as deplorables. But having someone who's running for president calling you that would be pretty much an, an affront to, to your kind of identity. Yeah, so the, the argument I'm trying to make, I'm not suggesting that um, ordinary people are innately um, and always anti-racist, always anti-sexist, always transphobic. I'm just suggesting that if we look back to how these movements were originally constructed, the argument was that ordinary people 
are the kind of um, motor of history. Ordinary people are a force that can overcome sexism, that can overcome racism. And in order to engage with them, you need to actually go out there and convince people of your ideas and um, engage them in their process of their own liberation. So a process, well, that's why the idea of participation is so important because it's in, the, it's in that process of coming together, of having debates, of having arguments that sexism, racism, can, homophobia can be overcome. Instead of that, I think all too often we're seeing um, a perspective which takes for granted that ordinary people are innately backward mm. and because they're innately backward, therefore they have to be kept out of the picture as much as possible so that we, this kind of well-educated, woke population, can do things that, you know, they will stand in the in the way of us doing it. And I think the problem with this is it enables the right then to present the left as being... Um, elitist, totalitarian, patronising and enables, you know, phenomena like Trumpism, phenomena like Trumpism where, you know, that evokes this weird reversal of the ideas of the left and the right. Mm, and instead of that that kind of very close engagement and, and negotiation and, and convincing that that you're suggesting needs to happen much more at the grassroots level, we have kind of call-out culture and people being slammed often on social media for a perceived transgression. Yeah, and look, I, I want to be really careful about this because I'm not trying to suggest that if, um, you know, someone who happens to be from a working class background says something racist or sexist, they shouldn't be taken mm. up. Of course they should, but there's a difference between a perspective that says this person can be convinced and can potentially become part of the solution to a perspective that says this person is innately part of the problem and therefore needs to be smashed. Of course, when whenever someone comes into politics for the first time, they're going to have a whole series of ideas in their heads about the world and how it can be changed. Some of those ideas are good. Some of those ideas are bad. Um, the, the, the left that um, was committed to direct politics had some sense of that, an idea that, you know, you have to win people over from backward racist, sexist ideas. And the way that you do that is engaging them in a collective process to change the structures of society. And that's quite a different perspective from the one that's predominant today. What role has kind of the, the rise of, of neoliberal economics played in that, do you think? Because when people were kind of involved in mass movements in the past, and it's, it's classical kind of, I guess, Marxist thought that people on the factory floor are associated, they're, they're in, a, in a similar class, and they will kind of come together and advocate for their own liberation in a way. But with people being on you know, more precarious kind of working arrangements on casual contracts and that sort of thing, not necessarily intending to be in a workplace for a long time or even being at university for, a, for an extended period of time. People might go back to university and back to the workplace and that sort of thing. Has that kind of, I guess, fragmentation and, and uh, um, more diverse kind of arrangements in people's lives in terms of their, their work and study life and that kind of thing played a role into this kind of um, atomization and, and fragmentation of, of the left, That's do you think? a really interesting question. I think the answer to it is twofold. In, in the first part, one of the things that neoliberalism has done, and contrary to what's often asserted, it created a vaster working class and a working class that's far more educated and far more concentrated. So very often when you hear people talking about class in this context, there's a sort of idea of class being this old-fashioned category that that um, refers to people in the country often doing some sort of old-fashioned, old-timey job digging stuff up or <laughs> whatever. You know, and then there are still people who do mm. that in working-class jobs. But the modern working class also includes, for instance, all the people in things like call centres, All of the, a lot of people in um, white-collar jobs. You think of something like um, the computer industry where once upon a time this was a mark of, um, of privilege and often a middle-class occupation. Now, you know, if you're some sort of code jockey, you're just a white collar employee like everyone else. So this is the kind of modern working class. But the second part of it, I think, is um, the last over the last few decades, what we've seen and neoliberalism has played a big role in this is the destruction of collective organisations. So I mean, we were just talking about this with Laura Tingle on Breakfasters this morning. Organisations like political parties now 
are far, far smaller and far, far more hollow than they ever have been in the past. Organisations like trade unions, but even community groups, social groups, um, we've moved to a much more of an atomised society and that makes it far more difficult for people to engage in the kind of direct politics that I'm talking about because the whole point of neoliberalism is to position us all as individual Mm. consumers we are all just individual agents in the market and of course that means it's all the more important for the left to rediscover those notions of solidarity because when people discover that it is actually possible to engage collectively with us it's transforming for people you know that discovery that you're Mm. not alone there are lots of other people who are in the same situation um and it's in those moments where people overcome the kind of backward ideas they might have about people of different ethnicities or different genders or different sexualities. And I think that that's the kind of real hope of the left. Mm, speaking with Jeff Sparrow all about his brand new book, Trigger Warnings, Political Correctness and the Rise of the Right. And, I mean, talking about that kind of collectivisation, there have been examples of, of opposition to the throes of neoliberal economics and the unequal way in which it distributes some power and, and, and that sort of thing, such as Occupy Wall Street. And, and people might remember the S11 protests, which were very kind of visceral at the time in Melbourne, but they kind of came and, and went in a yes. way. Yes, yeah, that, that's right. And I think both of those examples, the anti-corporate movement of the late 90s and the Occupy movement, they've, it's not just that they were defeated because they both were, but they were subsequently erased from political memory to the point now that um, people have forgotten about them or forgotten about the sense of excitement, the sense of possibility that they both opened up. And I think that's really important because it's easy for people to think that there is no alternative that, you know, that the kind of structural change that the direct politics left of the 60s was engaged in is now something that's impossible. But in a lot of ways, we're in a world now where almost nobody has any faith in the major political party. Oh, that's an overstatement. But you know what I mean? The, the, the authority of, of major political institutions is weaker than it's ever been. Mm. Nobody has any... People look at parliamentary politics and think there's something deeply broken um, about this. So the potential, I think, for uh, a resurgence of the kind of sentiment we saw with um, the Occupy movement or with the anti-corporate movement, I think is is there... That's why I think these debates matter so much because if people on the left have an attitude that ordinary people are the enemy, that ordinary people are innately backward, innately stupid, it's never, we're never going to be possible to mobilise that deep, deep discontent. I mean, on, on a really basic level, most people don't want to see the planet destroyed. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Most people think it's a bad thing that their kids are never going to see the Great Barrier Reef. And... We need to find a way to tap into that sentiment. Yeah, I'm really interested in in what we do with that sentiment and the strategies because clearly that's been a failing of progressives and the left for some time now as people like Trump have, have risen and, and the whole kind of Brexit movement has capitalised on, on xenophobia in a way and, and similar thing to to kind of Hanson's supporter base here which of course um, was present in the 90s but has very much come back today. Um, and you write that, that the usual response to progressives, to populist provoca- provocateurs, I'm going to think of like Milo Yunop, as, as another one to throw in the mix, um, not only fails to combat them, but often leaves them stronger. And, and when I read that, I was thinking about the kind of furor over Steve Bannon's interview on the ABC and also his, his kind of um, deplatforming from the New Yorker talk fest. And in a way, that seemed to be the absolute worst thing to do from a progressive perspective, to have someone invited to this kind of talk fest, then disinvited, and then, as he, as he has done, has claimed that that's kind of an elite group of people who don't want to hear my views. And it just kind of, that was one example that I thought of that very much played into that kind of sentiment and, and um, ascendancy of, of the right. Yeah, look, I, I, mean, I don't have any problems with... Festivals are curated. Festival directors have a responsibility to choose the people that they want to speak at it. Mm. So I don't have any problem with no. people deciding not to have right wing. Um, sorry, for on radio to, to have right wingers at, at, at their events. But I, I guess the point that I'm I'm trying to make is that very the, the left that today is very good at identifying instances of oppression and um, very rightly so very good at making a fuss about these things. What we're not 
so good at is identifying how these instances of oppression play out in the lives of ordinary people and what might be done to fight these things. So it's very easy for the debate to seem as if it's totally focused on what happens to celebrities, what happens, you know, that when we're debating about women's rights, we're often debating about, you know, um, the representation of women in boardrooms. And of course, it's totally right and justified to call out the sexism of the corporate culture, but most working people are never going to be in a boardroom. You know what I mean? And a lot of people never want to be in a boardroom, have a great deal of hostility to the boardrooms. And I feel that the key thing for us is to tap in, like, how do these debates impact on, say, people who are working in factories? How do they debate on people who are working in cleaning jobs? What sort of things might we do to stop, say, the widespread sexual harassment and abuse that happens in these low-paid jobs? And when we start talking about that, it's clear the need for structural changes, the need for things like greater workplace rights, the need for things for, you know, uh, shelters that people can go to if they need help. Those sorts of arguments that were so much associated with the direct politics left need to be back on the agenda. Otherwise, it's really easy to dismiss the left as simply being concerned for, you know, the top echelons of society in a way that allows the right to mobilise the bottom against us, if you see what I mean. Mm, and you used the example of, of Julia Gillard's speech in, in Parliament, her kind of very well-renowned misogyny speech, which I think it's fair to say was a great speech, but on the same day there was a cut to the single parents payment that passed through Parliament, which didn't really get much of an airing. That, that, that's right. And so... Um, that the, the cut to welfare of some of the poorest people in the world would have had um, massive impact on the ability of those women to cope with um, abuse and sexual abuse in the, in in, um, in a workplace. For instance, you're much less likely to be able to stand up to your boss if you don't think you can get you know any kind of um, welfare payments. So again, it's this kind of point, I guess that. When we don't make arguments about how these things affect the majority of people, how these pe things affect the poorest people and the sorts of structural changes they might need to overcome them, it becomes very easy for us to be isolated and to be marginalised, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't call out sexism and racism when it happens, you know, in Parliament or anywhere else. But it seems to me that the, the way the left needs to respond to that is to try and draw out the consequences of this for ordinary people rather than simply have a, a a debate that's so much kind of oriented at, you know, um, the intelligentsia. I mean, one of the things intelligentsia loves to do is to talk about itself. And I think one of the things that those of us who are in that um, field need to do is to find ways to talk in ways that resonates with ordinary people. Yeah, and, and you use the example of, of um, shows in, in the United States, such as The Daily Show and, and the likes of John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, who have very much performed that act of, of speaking to, I guess, um, a demographic or a, a collective of people who are already on their side, who think that, um, you know, the, the Republicans are mad or whatever, but it's not really enacting much change. And that kind of plays into that kind of smugness that, that you're talking about in the book. Yes, exactly. I think I use the um, example of a film, Idiocracy, I think mm. it's called, um, which is, you know, a, a Bush-era um, comedy, which um, is set in a future where uh, intelligent, educated Americans have stopped having kids and so the society has been dominated by these kind of um, boorish, idiotic, Homer Simpson-like drones who just eat junk food and masturbate all all, all, all day. And look, it, 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 it's a comedy, but if you spelled out the politics of that and said, like, um, actually, we um, progressives are really worried that there are too many ordinary people about out there and they're too stupid and backward, this is a repellent perspective. Mm. And, you know, how do we think we are going to win people to our side when our starting point is the majority of, the, of society it's comprised of hopeless idiots who are a problem and shouldn't be allowed to breed. I mean, you know, if ever, you know, someone had a death wish, this is a death wish perspective. And also it's not true. And one of the points I try to make in this book is that if you look back at the major struggles against sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, it is ordinary people who have played a central role in them. I mean, the middle class intelligentsia likes to pretend that these things are led by well-educated academics. It's just not true. Mm. So, you know, why then 
do we spend so much time insisting that ordinary people are incorrigible morons when in fact most of the time it's these people that get labelled incorrigible morons who play this quite heroic role in overcoming racism, sexism, in homophobia in often, you know, quite difficult contexts. And you write about the, the marriage equality postal survey and the process that led up to that in this book as well. And I think there was a lot of concern from, from people about just what the result would be. And it was a very kind of bruising encounter for, for a lot of people um, at that time. But there was quite a sustained kind of grassroots activism and, and effort, it seemed to me, around that time to convince people that, um, you know, voting yes was was a good and, and, and socially kind of conscious thing to do is that kind of an example of the type of engagement that, that we could see more of in your view or yeah, so, how do you see that so so the marriage equality obviously it was tremendously um difficult for a lot of people this was a plebiscite that was introduced by tony abbott as a way of stalling you know for for, for time complete political that's initiative. That, that's right and people quite legitimately asked well why is this happening over this issue and not other issues so there's a clear kind of homophobic element in that um in, in in that regard, but at the end of the day, it really is quite extraordinary that Australians voted overwhelmingly to allow same-sex couples to um, to get married in a way that 20, 30 years ago, nobody would have believed possible. And one of the really interesting things was to compare the electorates in Tasmania where, because remember, homosexuality was legal into Tasmania well into the 1990s. The, the electorates in Tasmania where the majority of people had voted against legalisation, against legalisation to keep homosexuality as a crime only a couple of decades ago, now had a majority voting for the yes case. And I feel that this, to me, is something that should be celebrated as a great source of hope, that it was the political class that put obstacles in, term, in, in front of um, the same-sex marriage cause all the way through. You know, both the Labor Party and the Liberal Party opposed it all the way through. Parliament was completely unable to deliver a simple reform. It was ordinary Australians who you know, despite what many people thought, stepped up and voted yes in overwhelming numbers. And while, you know, um, the, the survey was very um, confronting and difficult for a lot of people, I think this is something to celebrate that, you know, again, 20 years ago, nobody would have believed this was um, possible. And to me, this is a cause of hope that ordinary Australians are a lot better than most people think they are. Mm, you spelled out really clearly and in a lot of detail in this book um, how difficult it is to have conversations around how we can kind of come together and, and, and collectivise to advance, you know, positive changes for society and so on. And I'm imagining you don't have any kind of silver bullet for, for how we can suddenly turn things on its head and, and move in the right direction. But do you see hope, like little kind of um, pockets of hope at all in, in where we're at in Australia or other places around the world that suggest that things might turn around anytime soon? Yeah, so I'm not trying to offer a magic bullet you know if i thought there was a magic bullet i'd be you know i'd be out there be doing, doing it, it. Rather, <laughs> rather than than talking about it but no def definitely it was one of the reasons why i wanted to um talk a little bit about the plebiscite thing because i think you know the outcome of the positive aspect of this wasn't acknowledged nearly enough the fact that ordinary australians could be one to something where so many conservatives took for granted that ordinary people were homophobic you know it was just a it was just a statement of faith and in fact that turned out not to be um the 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 case at all and i think there are all sorts of surveys that show that young people today have really radical ideas, you know, um, in terms of their attitudes to socialism, um, their attitudes to, to capitalism. I think there is a real potential out there, a real yearning for change. And, you know, a, again, it doesn't seem that extraordinary. You look at where the world is now, you look at where it's heading. You know, the, the, the Trump administration released a document um, last week where they took where it was, they took for granted that um, that we were going to see four degrees of warming. They just accepted that was a fact. This was going to happen. Four degrees of warming would lead to catastrophic devastation, irre irreversible catastrophic devastation all over the planet. So in the face of that, it's clear we can't go on like this. Oh, well, not that we can't go on like this, but we shouldn't, we go, shouldn't. On, go on like this. And so I think there's a real constituency for change. And um, that's why we need to start talking about things like participation, things like radical democracy, things like solidarity, things like structural change.
Absolutely. Well, um, thanks for having a good old chat today oh, and sticking around so after breakfasts. And um, Jeff's brand new book is out today. Um, we've got a scoop on the first Jeff Sparrow interview, potential, or one of the first about this book, <laughs> when, it, when it's available anyway. Um, it's called Trigger Warnings, Political Correctness and the Rise of the Right. It's out through Scribe. You can get it at uh, your local independent bookstore and online as well. And you do have a few speaking events coming up as part of this release, Jeff. You're going to be very busy. Um, the next one, I think, in Melbourne is a new international bookshop on the 8th of October. Yeah, with Ros Wood. I'm really looking forward to it. Awesome. It's going to be yeah. great. And then heading up to Sydney as well on the 11th of October. Thanks so much, and I'll uh, catch you soon. Cool. It's time now for our reading room segment, and today we've got a very special guest joining me in studio. Terry Denton has been writing and illustrating children's books for over 30 years, and over that time has won a slew of awards. Throughout his career, he's collaborated with a whole lot of other people, but his most productive and best-known partnership has been with Andy Griffiths. Over the years, they've collaborated on many books, including most famously the Treehouse series, with Andy writing the words and Terry drawing the pictures, which has also been turned into its own stage show multiple times and ordinarily would be joined by Sally Rippon for this segment but she unfortunately can't be here today but I'm thrilled to have Terry Denton here in the flesh. Welcome to Triple R. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And you you and uh, Andy Griffiths are kind of rock stars of the children's book world. You've been called the Lennon McCartney of kids books. (laughs) Where did it all begin for you two? Um, I suppose it began when um we, we were put together by a, um, an educational publisher because Andy had written sort of um, a book on teaching teachers how to get kids reading and um, they needed someone who could do f- sort of funny illustrations and they they put us together, her publisher, Macmillan it was at that time, put us together and um, we kind of found that we had a similar sense of humour and, and really I found that I was doing a lot of books. I've done a lot of books by that stage. Andy hadn't. But um, I was never doing stuff that was my sense of humour. You know, I grew up with, um, as, as, as Andy did really, with um, the young ones and uh, all sorts of um, interesting sort of TV stuff, but but Warner Brothers cartoons and stuff like that, um, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck. And, and there was a humour to that that we uh, we shared that we, we didn't see coming into kids' books at all. So we um, eventually got together and he had written short stories and we went together to a publisher and because I have reputation he was having trouble getting them published and 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 got them published you know we did just tricking and um and then you know 20 years later we're still working together yeah never looked back since <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> yeah. like that amazing um, and and from from your books and I mean I've also been with my nephews to the stage version of the 78 <laughs> story treehouse which was pretty awesome um, and the characters play you and and Andy, of course, in 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 the play yeah, as they do. That's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what's it like watching that on stage when people are pretending to be you and Andy? Look, it's great watching them on stage doing the doing the sh- the, the, the you know the, the book basically, but um and and those ideas coming to to life in three dimensions, which is you know quite a thing to do, you know that jump. But I've never thought of the Terry character as being me particularly so it's um there's not that connection in my mind mm. that it's me it's just some guy doing acting uh, the, these these parts yeah yeah you haven't called for his job <laughs> no no <laughs> Yeah. 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 Well, did, did your craft, your kind of illustrative craft change when you started working with with Andy at all to kind of suit his stories? Um well, what we did was a really unusual thing with with the tree, with the uh, just books. We we said let's not illustrate them, um, you know, illustrating what Andy's doing. Let's create a bit more marginal space around the edges of the book, and I can do what I like in that space. So it was like two books in one. Yeah, wow. And then we spent a lot of time. We did six or eight of those books, I think. Then we spent a lot of time thinking about how we could get more the drawings sort of more into the into the main thing and one day we did this book called the bad book which andy and his wife jill wrote and um it was just bad ideas bad stories you know bad poems and um we thought how will i illustrate it and and at first we thought let's do it in really bad drawings and then we (laughs) sort of pulled back from that and did kind of nice drawings but we did then did a thing called the very bad book and at that point we thought um, you know, we talked this through and, and I said, let's do just stick figures, like really. Because what you do with stick figures, you're just f- 
focusing on the emotion really and, and who gives a rats about how the body works. You know, it's just stick a couple of legs and arms on it. <laughs> and um, and we found that was so that the emotion that came across and the, it just was so feral, the, the, the sort of the end point. Um, we just love that. And I think we've just taken that further now into the into the treehouse books. Yeah, right. So kind um, of like unlearning your craft yeah, in, in a way. Yeah, exactly that, yeah. And what I find, which really surprised me, is I get a lot of letters and emails from kids who say, I love your drawings and I uh, wish I could draw like that. And, you know, my, my thought is, yeah, you can draw like that, actually. <laughs> you know, it's stick figures. Um, so it's sort of it's kind of directly connected with them, I think. Um, do you spend a lot of time labouring over your drawings or, or do you kind of like churn them out and, 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 and just keep them coming as, as you work? How does it work for you? Yeah, a bit like that. I, I churn churn them out, um, you know, just just we lay out a whole book and, and they're 360-page books. Mm. There's about a 1,000 drawings in each book. So so it's just a matter of getting it down really quickly. But at the beginning there is and, – and from time to time throughout it, there's some quite complex drawings too and, and they you have to labour those. Um, I've been doing um, some history books recently <clears throat> and I've been using um, the uh, iPad, uh, iPad Pro and the pencil and um, that's really good because it's got – it's got a back arrow where, where, you know, you stuff up someone's eye, you can just press <laughs> yeah, a delete. back arrow and <laughs> delete and do it again. Um, and I'd like to do the treehouse books like that but because of the complex books. There are complex pictures. Um, pretty much you have to do it in a kind of traditional way um, just because you have to – because they're bigger than the iPad. Mm. Yeah. You did mention um, the bad book and, and the very bad book just before. And, and I want to talk a bit about that because it came with, I guess, a little bit of controversy, that one, in that it was kind of banned by a few bookshops and people weren't quite sure that it was necessarily suitable for kids because of some oh, of the know, themes it dealt sure with. I'm pretty sure it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was, it was a really interesting stage, that, because Andy in particular spent a lot of time writing letters and to people, at, you know, to, and to papers or talking about it um and yeah we what we kind of knew instinctively is that kids would get it but that adults wouldn't and um you know controversy didn't hurt the sales in the end that's right <laughs> <laughs> but it was you know there was there was one where this kid is standing at the edge of the four-lane highway and he says mommy can i run across the four-lane highway and she says no 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 that's you'll get killed and he said no 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 look please let me go across and eventually he convinces her and and then he says, Mom, say, say, ready, set, go, and I'll run. And he says, ready, set, she says, ready, set, go, and he just gets splattered. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lesson in that, and isn't she there? walks away saying, oops. <laughs> um, and people didn't like that much. Actually, the one that got us into trouble, though, was with some kid called Billy who was setting fire to himself and doing all sorts of things. And at some point, he set fire to his hair, but he set fire to the cat. Mm. And Not advisable. Not a, Yeah, that was, people didn't like that idea. <laughs> and I understand why not, you know, it's... Dumb idea in a way, but, but kids can kind of see the the playfulness in some of those ideas, and it's interesting that that you know talking about writing it for kids as as all your work would you know would be yep. geared geared for the, the the children audience, but that that you had faith that they would kind of understand it, but it would be the adults who had the problem because they might take it more literally. Yeah, that's exactly, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah, um, yeah, we knew the kids would would get it. Um, and, and that, in the in the uh, treehouse books, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. You know, we we know a little bit more now the limits of what we can do. Mm. Um, Speaking with Terry Denton this morning in uh, this month's edition of Reading Room, all about his craft and his work. Do you do much road testing of of ideas on kids before you put them into books in that sort of published form? Um, with the bad book, I know we would touring separately but Andy would have would have been road testing um, some of the ideas and I was reading some of the poems as well uh, when we were talking to groups of kids um, we were doing some with uh, the Treehouse book for example after the first one we, we did a few gigs at places like well just to group, bigger groups of kids and we would test the because each book starts with about um, 15 or 13 levels mm. 13 levels yeah and and we were road testing what they might be before we'd actually written them. Um, we had a lot of ideas, but we just see which ones click and which ones don't. 
and, and which ones and kids would throw back ideas to us too. So that was like one day one kid said, um, little girl said, oh, what about a, a, a fairy level, a fairy crushing level? With, oh, that's that's gold. <laughs> but we actually never used it because it's brutal. Yeah, well. <laughs> but um, but we would test it on on kids to some extent. Um, but in the end, you trust your instincts too. Yeah. Because um, kids will often say, "Yeah, that's good," even you know, and you think, "Well, maybe it's not that good." Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you got to trust your instincts. Yeah. Do you have a favourite um, treehouse level? The Level. Um, my favourite treehouse book is is actually sixty five story treehouse because it's time travel mm. and and when we did that we were do actually trying that on kids and we said you know what what would the, the time travel machine be and some and I th- I can't remember actually but but we just suddenly um, I drew the um, a wheelie bin and we just thought yeah wheelie bin that that's a fantastic sort of thing to get around and that was really a core moment when we we just took that idea around with it but levels there's the chainsaw juggling level which is great one of my favorite <laughs> and we have a watermelon smashing level too which just think oh that would be fun, yeah, a lot of fun. good way to get rid of some stress as well yeah good way to get rid of stress yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah i was at the uh i was at olympic park watching collingwood lose the grand final Aww. on saturday but if we had some watermelon crushing kind of <laughs> you <laughs> set up. That would have been great. <laughs> oh, that was cruel. That was terrible. Anyway. I'm, uh, I've watched them lose 10 now. Yeah. Oh. So I think it's like when your dog dies, you oh. sort of think, oh, yeah, that's really sad. Yeah. But when your 10th dog dies, I suppose you just don't care anymore. <laughs> I think I've got to that stage. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's good. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. uh, you've re- uh, done work for, for television as well in the past, um, which I actually wasn't aware of that you'd worked on the Liftoff series, which was a yeah. big part of my childhood. Oh, was it? Yeah, oh, yeah, good. huge part. Um, and be a whole generation of kids who have grown up with, of course, the Treehouse books and, and yep. your other work as well. But what was that, that like working in TV and, and would you kind of like to do that sort of work again with the Treehouse books or, or others? Um, I, I really – I was called into it um, with – there were four of us who were – five of us who were building a template for the program. That was the thing. And they talked to a lot of educators and different people and, and creatives – to get ideas of what the program might be and we had to try and take it from that to something, mm. uh, working for the Australian Children's Television Foundation. But eventually my job became to design the look of the characters, the puppets and the program along with a guy called Tel Stolfo who designed the sets. Um, and that was just a magical thing to do, to be able to do, you know. Mm. It just sort of snuck up on me. If someone had said that's what you're going to do, I would have been too scared to do it probably. But it just <laughs> sort of snuck up on me and um, <clears throat> I, I loved it. Um and it was very groundbreaking. And I think for some people it, the mission was to, uh, to destroy play school in the end. <laughs> but our play school won out quite easily. <laughs> it's still on, isn't it? <laughs> it's still on. Because um, and, and it, was, it was the thing that worked about it. It was a soapy with kids acting kids' parts, uh, plus a whole lot of you know, animation and all sorts of stuff. But it was actually that soapy bit that worked really well. Um, kids just doing kid stuff. Yeah. Um, and no one's done that since, really. It's, I suppose because it's, it's an expensive, very expensive way of making television. Mm. But, yeah, groundbreaking. Yeah, it was really distinctive in, in the look of it as well and, and yeah. the puppets such as EC, that kind of puppet yeah. without the, the facial features, the eyes and so on, yep. which was, um, yeah, such and, a... And the guy who did who um, was the puppeteer for that, Peter Wilson, he was an amazing puppeteer. It just, it just talked through him, you know, his hands just made it talk yeah. <laughs> yeah it was a magical event though I, I loved being involved but I, as for other television I, I found it also it um, took me away from what I really love doing which is which is the books and drawing and painting and stuff like that yeah um, but we often talk about doing a treehouse series you know we're not rushing into it but maybe one day um, it might happen I, I had a series of books called Gasp about a sort of manic fish and that got turned into a TV series mm. animated um, but it's kind of out of your control. You just have to say, I'm either going to be involved or I'm going to step back and let them do it, trust them to do it. And I was happy with the Gasp TV series. But I think the, the Treehouse one would be, would be kind of tricky. It's, um, I mean, what you call it to begin with is going to be tricky. Yeah, you need a big tree as well. <laughs> you need a big tree. <laughs> well, that's <kind> of difficult. <laughs> it sounds like you have um, heaps of fun doing what you do. And um, 
I found it really hilarious that um, I came across this over the weekend that you're seeking to break the Guinness World Record for the most people dressed <laughs> as, as trees at the Sydney Opera House later this month, which is a pretty noble pursuit. How did that come about? Uh, I think that was um, a combination of Andy and um, and Charlotte, the uh, our publicist, and um, she's a media manager at Pam Macmillan, and they both thought that would be a fabulous idea. And they tried to do it last year, but something went wrong last year. They couldn't do it. So they're trying again. <laughs> Have another crack. <laughs> so we're going to go up there and dress as trees and hope someone else turns up. Yeah. I wonder <laughs> if there's a, a kind of a judge that decides if you're adequately yeah. dressed as a tree oh, okay. or if you just kind yeah, of got well, a green T-shirt be, on. And, yeah. Yeah, you It's can't. an official thing. Yeah. I wonder what, yeah, that's true. Do you have to have roots? Do you have to... Yeah. Who knows? Leaves? Leaves. Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Deciduous? You don't leave anything to doubt. Just just come dressed as the, the best tree you can, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, what have you got uh, coming up? Any other kind of books in the pipeline coming out in the immediate future? Well, we, we ha- I'm working, have just finished working on one, which is um, about the, um, the moon landing, uh, which is 50 years next year. Mm. And it's been a bit of a hurry to get it done in time for that, which is July next year. And that's been fantastic. Just, I, I remember it really well, the moon landing and... Um, and just doing space pictures is just kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one I'm, I've finished a little while back and we were lo- actually launching today is uh, one on um, the history of Australia by Alison Lloyd, who we've, I've done a couple of Chinese history books with. But it's done, it's from um, Big Bang to Federation basically and just covers all aspects of, of even just the land putting itself together. Yeah, um, right. From Gondwana land. Um, yeah, so... And, they're all quite different things and one's a you know, full-on colour picture book and the other is just um, drawings I did on my iPad Pro and um, all quite challenging in their own way. And then straight on to the, the 100 and, um, God, what is it, 104, 117-storey treehouse. be that, yeah, yep. So I'm starting, <laughs> I started that, uh, meant to be there today, meant to be starting it today at my little desk. Oh, well, there's still time. Yeah, I'll get an hour done. <laughs> 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 and that'll be out next year sometime. That comes out, yeah, July next year. Wow, just keep pumping them out. Yeah, it's working that way. Mm. The, pump is, the pump is happy. But I, um, I'm going to take a bit of time next year, just do a bit of painting and uh, renovating my house, I think, as well as uh, do one tree house book. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today and um, and anyone can keep an eye out for those uh, those books Terry just mentioned that will be out very soon and the, the next iteration of the Treehouse um, series out sometime um, towards, I guess, the back end of next year. Um, yeah, July. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for coming on Triple R. Thanks, Dylan. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.